Right. So we're looking at the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 5 and lesson 15. And the author has begun to show that Yeshua is the ultimate high priest. He has shown us already that he's a messenger above all messengers. That means all prophets, even angels. Angels because he is the son of God. And last week we covered how since he's been raised from the dead, he lives to pray, to intercede for us. He sits at the right hand of God. And when he prays, of course, if he's at the right hand, he has the right ear of God as well. And we looked at some examples last week of what he prays, like Luke chapter 22 and John chapter 17. But let's read that section again, beginning with verse 7. It says, During the days of Yeshua's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this. But it's hard to explain because you are so slow to learn. <laughs> wow. So what we have here is the author, he wants to teach them about the high priestly order of Melchizedek, but he can't, and why not? Too slow to learn. He says they're too slow to learn. In fact, in a moment he's going to say that they actually need milk and not solid food. Solid food, of course, being the deeper things of Messiah and of his priesthood, the order of Melchizedek. And milk, well, he's going to lift off, list off six things. Listen to what he says. In verse 1, he says, of chapter 6, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Messiah and go on to maturity. I like the way F.F. F. Bruce uh, renders it. He says, let us leave the preliminary stage of Messiah's message. So, he says, let us leave the elementary or preliminary teachings about Messiah. And what does that mean? Well, I said, he's going to list off six things, but for me, it includes more than that. It includes everything that he said before. He wants to leave that elementary teaching. That means everything that we've covered in the last 14 weeks. I feel like I've been standing up here for nothing because they're so elementary, we should all be able to understand it, right? I have had people, listen, I've had people come in here from churches and say, why is it you never have an altar call? You don't preach the gospel here. And I say, how can you say I don't preach the gospel? I just finished going through the first eight chapters of Romans. You see, they think because at the end of the message, at the end of the sermon, I don't say, if you do not know Jesus, and if you haven't had the wonderful experience of, and the healing power of Jesus worked in your life, I want you to know this morning that Jesus loves you, and I want you to come forward so I can pray for you, pray with you to receive Jesus into your heart today. You see, those people think, that I don't preach the gospel because I don't say that. When in fact, they just heard the gospel in my teaching from Romans. But they didn't recognize it. What they've heard in the past and believed to be the gospel is not the whole gospel. 
When he says, let us leave the elementary teachings of Messiah and go on to maturity, he's saying, let's leave these things that every believer must know, that every believer should know, to walk with God. And let us move on to maturity in Messiah. And don't get me wrong. I don't want anybody to go out of here and say that we don't need to accept Yeshua into our hearts. But if you think that's the gospel... And we have to say that each and every week to preach the gospel. You need a whole lot more milk. The author just covered what every believer needs to know. It is the gospel. And it was that there is no one ever sent by God higher than his son Yeshua. And that he came to this earth to be made like us. To share in our humanity so that he could Save us and destroy the power of the adversary, but also that he could identify with our plight and he could pray for us. He could indwell us and show us the way to the Garden of Eden again, the Garden of God. He told us today, if we hear his voice, we can enter the rest that Yeshua secured for us. And he warns us to remain faithful to what we have heard. He told us that there's no one greater, not Moses. Yeshua's words carry more weight than those of Moses. He came and he died and he did all of that so that we might have a Sabbath rest. Now, if we hear his voice and at the end of the age as well. So, you know, what he's saying is those are things every believer must know. This is what Messiah came for. And you must hold firmly to these things, to the faith that you had at the beginning. Those are things that we all must know and believe, profess with everything we do in life. And then he's going to list off these six things. He lists off six specific things. Verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 6 says, Repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of teachings of baptism and laying on of hands, a resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. Six things. You know, what I would like to do one day, I'd really like to do this, I would like to get a bunch of believers in the room. Take maybe just a dozen people or so, maybe more, I don't care. Long-time church or Messianic synagogue members, I'm not just picking on the church today, long-time believers in Yeshua, and ask them, could they write down for me what these six things are and what they mean? I can tell you what I'm going to get. A bunch of gibberish. <laughs> it's true. And the reason is we don't know the elementary principles of the faith. You know why we don't know them? They're not taught. It's part of the gospel. And yet for the writer, these things are baby food. Not even baby food. They're milk, infant food. But they're actually the gospel of Messiah. When Messiah came into the world, what did he teach? What was the very first thing? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And what's the very first thing in our list? Repentance from dead works. Right? What does he mean when it says repentance from dead works? 
Well, I can tell you what I'd get from a lot of leaders of most congregations. They would say, oh, that's easy. Repentance from dead works means that we don't keep the law. The law are the dead works. Remember what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. He said, for as many are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Test me in this. Go out of here and ask the average person, the average believer. And this is what you're going to get. The writer, they're going to think the writer means that we don't have to keep the dead works of the law anymore. When in fact, he means just the opposite. That's the King James rendering. I want to look at a more accurate translation. That is to say... In this one instance, it's more accurate because the NIV isn't all that wonderful. But they certainly have this verse nailed. He says, it says, Therefore, let's leave the elementary teachings about Messiah and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. End of faith in God, instruction about baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And notice how it's rendered this time. It says, acts that lead to death. Now, if we look in our Bibles, what acts does it tell us that lead to death? Sinful acts lead to death. The Bible says the wages of sin are death. And what is sin? Well, that's easy. John tells us a, a real succinct definition. He says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, he says... Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is transgression of the law. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And no one who continues to sin has either seen or known him. So not only do these people who say dead works are the law not know the truth about this elementary principle of the faith, but what they do believe could possibly lead them to sin. Because the author is actually saying repentance from sin that leads to death. And that's the exact opposite of what they believe. But that's what you would hear from the average believer. Not all, mind you, but... I would say the average. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm church bashing here today, so I'm going to say go to the other hand. On the other hand, we have those in the Messianic movement who read those words and go around beating people with their Bibles, telling them they're going to go to hell for this and for that. If you eat pork, you're going to go to hell. Things like that. When, they, when, you, when you see they read that, you see they read this and... They read that sin leads to death. They know that. Sin is transgression of the law. But the trouble is they stopped reading there chapter 3. They didn't get to the conclusion of the matter. They err as well because if we get to the conclusion of the matter, which is in John chapter 5, he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. But if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have, to, we have what we asked him for. 
If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is sin that does not lead to death. The point being is we got a lot to learn. What sin leads to death? And what sin doesn't lead to death? We need to know because this is elementary. It's an elementary principle of the faith. It's something all believers should know. Right? And if we don't know these things, how can we go on to the weightier matters of God? We are supposed to be the most enlightened people of God in the history of the world. We're supposed to be miles ahead of these first century believers. We all have multiple Bibles in our homes. They had none. Right? We have, we're always going to some study. And we all have teachers. We have these teachers with degrees and pastors with higher learning. And what do we end up with? People who are still drinking milk. And sadly, I hate to say this, but it isn't even milk. It's water with enough white shoe polish or something in it to make it look like milk. The fact is, even though we have all these advantages, we're in worse shape than the Hebrews he's writing to. And that's okay, as long as we're willing to study and repent. You see, we have to repent. So as you can imagine, that's what I'm going to focus on today, these elementary principles. Let's read this again. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Messiah and go on to maturity, laying again, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, of faith in God, instruction about baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting we will do so. So we looked at repentance, right? Once you repent, once you look at your life and say, what a mess. Then what do you need to do? Well, you need to have faith in the Son of God. That he made a way for you to be forgiven. And not only that, he made a way for you to walk through life as he walked through life. Leaving the sinful life that leads to death permanently and go on with him. And so what else did Messiah preach? He came preaching repentance. We looked at that. Well, he also preached this, one that we all know by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes or has faith in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, repentance and faith are the foundation of the gospel. You have to trust the message and the work of Messiah. What does it mean to believe? To have faith. Well, the author gives us a biblical definition in chapter 11. He says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. You see, faith is having this surety. And, and you know something? I am certain that the crazy stories that we read in this book are true. 
The rest of the world looked up at the stake on the day Yeshua died and said, well, we don't got to worry about that fella anymore. Three days later, when he rose to the dead, they said, oh, someone stole his body, but we still don't got to worry about that fella anymore. When I read of that day, my faith says that wasn't the end of Yeshua. That was the end of the consequences of my sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And that was the start of my walking through life anew with a new master. It wasn't the end. It was the start of my life. And the start of his kehilat, which brings us to the next part of the gospel. He says, instructions in baptisms. And notice he says plural, baptisms. You know, the church knows and only teaches about one baptism. So this is kind of a hard verse. What about baptisms, plural? Or we could really say washings, plural. These folks knew about washings. They had washings for those who had sinned because sin left you unclean. They had washings for touching a corpse because that left you unclean. They had washings... Women's washings for their monthly cycle because that left them unclean. Every time you went to the temple, you had to go through a washing. Washings aren't something that these Hebrews really needed instructions. It was a basic principle of the faith for them. It was elementary. Touch something unclean. Hey, you need to wash. Simple, right? They were going to the temple many times a year and you didn't get to go into the temple without a washing, without immersion bath. The temple was holy ground. The temple was the dwelling of God. And when you left the uncleanness of this world outside the temple to go before God, you had to bathe. You had to wash. See, the moral is we may need more than one immersion. We may need more than one you know, as you walk through the life, you're going to come in contact with uncleanness. And God forbid we may sin. And so we need not just to go on sinning, but we need to repent again. And we need to get rid of that uncleanness out of our lives. We may want to go through another immersion so that we can move on with the master anew. Amen? You know, they had 3,000 people on the day of Shavuot, Pentecost. Think of this. They were in the temple when, when Peter was preaching to them. They had gone through the immersion baths when they heard Peter and preaching to them. And then they went back out and went through the immersion baths again. 3,000 people were immersed into the kingdom that day, right? They immersed new believers coming into the kingdom. And by being immersed, they were saying, I died in my former self. And now I'm going to go on and live for God. I leave the impurity and the profanity of this world and go on in the purity and the holiness and the righteousness of the world to come. Once you repented and trusted in Messiah, you took a bath for the uncleanness that you'd wallowed in and went on to walk in purity that only the Master can bring into your life. Paul says it so well in Romans. He says... What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Messiah, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into his death in order that just as Messiah was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may too live a new life. 
We were raised with Messiah so that we could go on living. As we have before, we could just go on. We're saved now. Everything's okay. Everything's all good, right? No. We died so that when we came out of the water, we could go on and live a brand new life. Leave behind the acts that lead to death. The sin that leads to death. And even those that don't lead to death. And go on to a life that's pleasing to God. Amen. And next he says, laying on of hands. You know something? Laying on of hands. What do we know about laying on of hands? Not much, right? We might see it on TV. Some Pentecostal preacher laying on hands on somebody, watch them fall over. These people knew about laying on of hands. These people had offered offerings. They had gone to the temple with a lamb. They knew that when they laid hands on that animal, they were identifying with that lamb. And the lamb was spotless, without blemish. And once it was laid hands on, it bore the confession of the offerer's sins. Or we might say, the offerer took on the spotlessness of the animal, and the animal took on the sin. You identified with that animal. With the laying on of hands, there was an identification that took place. You and he, so to speak, became one. And then you took the knife, you took the knife, not somebody else. You took the knife and you cut the animal's throat. And in the death of the animal, you were faced with the consequence of your sin. A lamb who was spotless had to pay the price for your transgression. A rabbi once read said, seeing the consequences of your actions should make you go away and sin no more. Well, think about it. Just when, as when we accept Yeshua, we put our trust in him, and then we read the accounts of his death, how he suffered for us, we are to go away and sin no more. Amen. That's why John said, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning, and no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. You see, we see the terrible consequences of our sin, and we should go and sin no more. And that brings us to the other side of laying on of hands. Paul says to Timothy, he says in chapter 5, verse 22, he says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. After we find Messiah, we're supposed to live sanctified lives. We're to lay hands on no unclean thing. Remember, laying on of hands, as I said, there's an identification takes place, an approval of what is taking place. And when people in the church condone sin, gross sin that leads to death, they're laying hands on an unclean thing. These churches that condone sin or make excuses for sin are touching the unclean thing. And if you're part of that church, you're touching it as well. We've forgotten Paul's advice to the Corinthians. He says this, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Messiah and Belial? And what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out of them and separate. 
says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. We're not to touch anything unclean. In other words, these churches who are winking at gross sin or allowing gross sin within their walls, rainbows on their signs out front and so forth, have touched the unclean thing. And people who are serious about God should be running out the door, kicking and screaming out the door because we should be as burnt offerings before the Lord. See, these people knew about burnt offerings. These Hebrews knew about burnt offerings. You laid hand on a burnt offering, and as you watched that animal, the whole animal, go up on the altar, being burned on the altar, its smoke rising to God, its sweet savor to the Lord. That animal rising to the heavens, they knew that it symbolized what your commitment to God should be. They knew about those two burnt offerings offered morning and evening every day while the temple stood symbolized what Israel's commitment to God should be and what our commitment to God should be. And then lastly, he talks about the resurrection. The resurrection is an elementary principle of the faith. The resurrection of the dead. It's a teaching that came to its fullness with the Pharisees and the Jewish people. The resurrection of the dead is something the Hebrews knew, a lot, knew about long before they were even believers. These Hebrews knew about the resurrection of the dead before they ever heard about Yeshua. And it was one of the divisions between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees says there is a resurrection. The Sadducees said no. Hotly contested at that time. Widely taught. They knew about the resurrection of the dead. And that's why Paul would say this in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. He said, And who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse 20, he says, But Messiah has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through Amen. You want to be re resurrected to life? Well, you better get acquainted with Yeshua then. You know, many think that we're going to go to heaven. Right? We're going to live the rest of our life. We're going to live the rest of this eternity in heaven. We're going to be resurrected and live in heaven with Messiah. We're going to be floating around like spirits in the sky. We're coming here to live. Where God intended us to live. Listen, spirits don't have arms. They don't have legs. They don't need bread. They don't break bread. We're going to have legs. We're going to have legs to walk on this earth with Messiah. We're going to have arms. We're going to eat. How do we know that? Well, it just told us who's the first fruits of the resurrection. Of those who have fallen asleep. Let's look at what he did when he came. When he was resurrected. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were taking with each other about, talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Yeshua himself came and walked with them. Yeshua, the first fruits of the resurrection, didn't come, didn't do a flyby. Right? 
No, he came and he walked with them. And we're going to walk with him as well. Listen to verse 37 of the same chapter. They were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. As you see, I have. Yeshua was no spirit. He was no ghost. He walked. He could be touched. He had flesh and bones. And if we go down to verse or go to verse 28, it says, And as they approached the village to which they were going, Yeshua acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. You see, Yeshua sat and ate and broke bread with them. And this is the state of the resurrection. We're going to be on this earth. We're going to eat, enjoy all the goodness that God intended his people to have at creation in Ghani Din. That's where we're going. He told them already about the sword, right? That cuts for life, cuts for death. Death being the eternal punishment. But now, for the really hard part of this elementary principles, he states to them, how about us? Look at believers today. You know, if I were to write this letter to the average believer today, you know what he'd be doing? Wondering where he should sign up for kindergarten. Dear ones, we have many of our teachers that don't even understand these things. And he called these things milk, not even solid food. If this is milk and not solid food, and our teachers don't understand these, some of these things, then what are we being fed? We're being fed grass and stubble that the cows eat to make the milk. And guess what? You can't live on grass. You can't live on stubble. We can't survive on grass and stubble. It's not food for us. The people who call themselves believers today, many don't, don't look any different than the world around them. Amen. You can't tell the difference between them and the sexually immoral. And it's getting worse. Because we don't even, we don't even understand the very first uh, uh, principle, repentance. You know, 85% of the people in the U.S. claim to be Christians. It's probably not quite as much anymore, but, you know, 75, 85%, something like that. You know why? Because they read a track and said the sinner's prayer once. Or maybe it's just because their mom and dad were Christians. The problem is there's no change in their lives. They forgot to become disciples of Yeshua. They forgot to obey his command. They were not told these elementary principles of the faith. Just the sinner's prayer. And they heard it every service they went to church. But the elementary things that every follower of Messiah needs to know, they didn't hear. And he says, let us leave these elementary principles and let us go on to the deeper things of the faith. Melchizedek. 
and the priesthood of Messiah. Another dilemma. How do we go on? For we have not laid the foundation of the faith yet. Our pastors do commentaries on the book of Hebrews. They don't understand these elementary principles. How do we understand Melchizedek and Yeshua's priesthood if we know nothing about the earthly priesthood of God, which is a shadow of, Mel of that priesthood? How are you going to know about Yeshua the high priest if you don't know about the earthly high priest? How can we understand the heavenly high priest if we ignore the teachings God gave us? If we know nothing of sin offerings, how can we really understand Yeshua, the sin offering? If all we know is Christmas and Easter, how are we going to understand the book of Hebrews that's written all about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? You see, we need courses in the basics. Our teachers need to get back to the basics. And what about us? How do we move on in the book of Hebrews or any book of the Bible without this understanding? How can we understand the arguments that follow in the book of Hebrews as he speaks of the temple services like Yom Kippur without a complete understanding of the temple services, without understanding the purification laws? If we don't know what was so elementary to the readers of the letter and the writing... And those he wrote to, and he, and he was counting on those he wrote to to understand. How are we going to understand the letter? You know, is it any wonder that the book of Hosea says, My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priest. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I will also ignore your children. The more priests increase, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glory for something disgraceful. What a verse for today, amen? We need to get back to this first century understanding of these things. And how are we going to do that? Well, the way we've been doing it for the last 20 years here at KSS. A little here, a little there, here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. And with God's help, we'll continue to do so. Study and seek God for the right answers for our lives. Restore a true understanding of the Word of God through our study of the Word, archaeology, and other things. The customs, the traditions, the problems these people were facing. God permitting, we'll do so. Through this and the leading of the Spirit, we'll continue to become disciples of the Master. Amen? Amen. Let's bring the worship team back up.